Welcome to the Cytokine Signaling Forum's highlights from ACR 2021, where authors will take us through their posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Len Calabrese. I'm the head of the Cleveland Clinic's section of clinical immunology. You know, this year's ACR convergence had a number of interesting presentations beyond the scope of rheumatoid arthritis. In this edition, we're going to listen to data on the use of upadacitinib in spondyloarthritis. Well, hello, my name is Ian McInnes. I'm the Vice Principal and Head of College of Medical Veterinary and Life Sciences at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. It's an absolute pleasure to be telling you about this abstract, the treatment of non-biologic DMARD IR PSA patients with upadacitinib or adalimumab results in the modulation of distinct functional pathways. A proteomics analysis of the SELECT PSA1 phase three trial. Well, the background here is very straightforward. Padacitinib, I think you're all very familiar with this, a JAK1 relatively selective Janus kinase inhibitor. 15 milligrams per day seems to be the optimal dose to improve musculoskeletal symptoms, psoriasis, physical function, fatigue, quality of life, and also, by the way, inhibition of radiographic progression in people with psoriatic arthritis. Um, in the recent SELECT1 PSA stu study, we, we showed clinical efficacy, but we also showed that 15 milligrams of upadacitinib was non-inferior to adalimumab, 40 milligrams given every other week. Now, this work aims to evaluate the biologic pathway modulation by upadacitinib compared to adalimumab in patients with psoriatic arthritis via estimation of a, a predefined set of plasma proteins associated with inflammation. So this, if you like, is a biomarker approach, looking at a whole range of inflammatory proteins that by looking at patterns and then interpolating from that, the likely pathways that those patterns suggest are implicated, we can start to think about whether one mode of action or another mode of action are basically doing the same thing, or whether there are actually distinct features about the immunobiology that they modify. And then in future, if that were to, to, to be true, there would be the opportunity potentially to, to select different drugs for different patients. Well, if you have a look at the poster, figure one, on the right-hand side of the map, you're seeing upadacitinib and adalimumab will modulate similarly a group of protein biomarkers associated with the interferon, IL-6, and TNF pathways. What is the assay? Well, the assay is measurement of protein levels, and here we're showing you protein biomarkers. The, the biomarkers specifically modulated by upadacitinib are enriched for proteins generally associated with the T-cells and myeloid cells and reciprocally biomarkers specifically modulated by adalimumab are linked to the biology of macrophages and neutrophils. Okay, let's turn our attention to figure two. And now we're gonna look at pathway prediction analysis. So what we do here is we ask the computer to say, well, look, if those are the proteins that change, what are the lightly integrated pathways that are changing in our patients? And our analysis predicts that upadacitinib and adalimumab alter the biology of macrophages and myeloid cells similarly. However, if you go to figure three, and this is in contrast, the same kind of analysis focusing now in T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells, associated pathways predict that upadacitinib inhibits T cell function to a greater extent than adalimumab. And that kind of makes sense when you think about the, the very T cell specific mode of action that adalimumab has as against the, the broader cytokine inhibition that we achieve with the use of drugs like upadacitinib. And finally, pathway analysis predicts that upadacitinib has more substantial inhibitory effects on the biology of bone, connective tissue, and angiogenesis than adalimumab. 
Now, that may or may not be biologically real. It's certainly a fair reflection of our data. But remember, these are computer generated algorithms and they may well reflect the breadth of inhibition that we achieve with the paracitinib, which is a bit greater than the exquisite specificity of adalimumab. So more work required in that space. Well, what do we conclude here? Well, based on biomarker data, we suggest that uparacitinib exerts its activities by inhibiting pathways associated with adaptive and innate immunity, and potentially with non-immune vascular bone and connective tissue biology, consistent with observations that we previously made in rheumatoid arthritis. By contrast, adalimumab appears to be affecting more prominently innate immune system functions with specific effects of macrophages and neutrophils. But, and this is really important, we suggest that both treatments have similar inhibitory effects on myeloid cells, which I think reflects, if, if we think about this indirectly, a, an important role for these cells in people with psoriatic arthritis. So overall, this is a really interesting approach to biomarker dissection. It gives us a clue as to how these different modes of action might be working in people with disease and will allow us to reverse translate, to think back from the clinical experience to really dissect out and understand pathogenesis better. That'll allow us to use these medicines more effectively. But for me, the really intriguing pieces could be used that to find even better therapies. Thanks ever so much for your attention. Hello. My name is Xenophon Baraliakos. I'm a rheumatologist working in Germany, in uh, Herne, with a special interest in spondyloarthritis. And one important topic in that field uh, nowadays, since a couple of years, is also the difference or the similarities even between spondyloarthritis that affect mainly the axial disease and those who affect the peripheral, um, the periphery, this means joints. And so on the one hand, we do have axial spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. In the other hand, respectively, we would have mainly, have mainly psoriatic arthritis. The things to understand in that topic are not only things that have to do with the treatment that we choose for these conditions, but of course, they also have to do with um, the different clinical comparisons. And by that, I mean the comparisons where we do have patients with ankylosing spondylitis, for example, and not only axial, but also peripheral manifestations as compared to those with psoriatic arthritis, and not only peripheral, but also concomitant or later on occurring axial manifestations. In order to find uh, whether or not there are any differences between those uh, two conditions, we've conducted a post-hoc analysis of data uh, from operacidinib clinical trials, and we saw them as a poster at this year's um, ACR. Um, we conducted uh, a sub-analysis of the SELECT PSA1 and 2 study, the psoriatic arthritis studies, and the SELECT AXIS study, the ankylosing spondylitis study, and accordingly we've built four different uh, subgroups, again in PSA, those with and without axial symptoms, and in AS, those with and without peripheral symptoms. And um, here, we also try to check on whether or not there would be any differences in the spe specific findings um, that have to do with, for example, the tender joint count, the swollen joint count, the occurrence or the, um, um, the spread of psoriasis, um, different uh, questions of the BASTI, not only the total score and, um, and so on. Overall, we've been able to include more than 2,000 patients um, in, uh, or almost 2,000 patients 
uh, at the very end for the final analysis um, in this um, uh, sub analysis of the subgroups and compared, as mentioned before, all the patients that had that belonged to either the one or the other group. At baseline of the study, this means before any kind of um, treatment initiation, we had one third of the patients in psoriatic arthritis studies that um, had axial involvement and about 70% of patients in patients in the ankylosing spondylitis studies that had peripheral involvement. And um, overall, as I mentioned before, we had information, we had to have information about um, the uh, outcomes that uh, were used. And here I, I repeat it, but I also go into more details. We included, of course, the um, uh, gender distribution, the age, the body mass index, uh, um, and, um, to, to see whether or not this would have played a role for um, uh, antecedent findings. But we also included tender joint counts, well and joint counts, um, the psoriasis occurrence uh, in terms of, the, uh, of um, how many patients had uh, this um, uh, yes or no. Uh, but we also included CRPs, uh, physicians' global assessment, pain, and uh, the different questions of the BASTA as well as the ASTAS. Now, going into the results, uh, what we did see was that when it came, for example, to disease activity, such as uh, the questions of, uh, or the total, number, the total score of ASDAS or the total score of um, uh, BASTAI. Indeed, there, we've been able to see that um, there were um, um, no big differences, for example, in patients with um, axial involvement and those without axial involvement as compared to the patients with sorry, um, peripheral involvement in ankylosing spondylitis primarily. Or those without. There have been some numerical differences, but there also has been differences in the baseline, um, in some um, differences between the subgroups, but these have not been in, uh, very large. And importantly, also, what we tried to see was the effect of the drug treatment with upadacidinib here, especially 15 milligrams in those outcomes, for example, for disease activity. Now, for um, both or for all four subgroups, for both indications, also here, um, taking into account the similar baseline characteristics, we've seen no big differences in terms of decrease of, of disease activity. Again, including um, the BASTA and the ASDAS together, also including the patients who have been in an ASDAS inactive disease status as compared to the low disease activity status, the patients um, who responded in the different BASTA components. Um, also here, the different questions have not shown any large um, difference and the same applies also for the BASTA 50 outcomes. The only issue that I would just mention here is the swollen joint count, which of course occurred much lesser frequently in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, even with those with peripheral involvement, but that would be something that um, obviously and clinically um, seen um, uh, physicians would have used to rather identify a patient who has psoriatic arthritis primarily, despite the fact that axial symptoms may have started uh, earlier. So overall, what we can certainly say from this data is that um, in the uh, patients with uh, psoriatic arthritis with or without uh, axial involvement and patients with ankylosing spondylitis with or without peripheral involvement, occurrence of symptoms and, and also the scores have been very uh, similar, these data have been also shown at uh, ACE, at EULA uh, this year, and we've confirmed them that this ACR. 
And um, also the treatment effect of paracetamide 15 milligram has been um, very similar as well here, which confirms that spondyloarthritis is one disease. Patients may or come uh, with uh, the same um, uh, treatment burden of symptoms. And of course, and that's the most important outcome that I take out of it. When we treat them, we need to treat them with um, compounds such as obanacetinib, but also others um, that indeed cover the entire spectrum of spondyloarthritis and are not primarily focusing on the one or the other. This one size fits all um, uh, approach seems to be helpful because then we do not need to identify specifics to choose the drug, but would rather trust it that it does what it should do um, in all of our patients. Another study that has talked about the treatment in patients with psoriatic arthritis and axial involvement um, was presented at this year's ACR, where we checked on the efficacy of oparacetinib on patients specifically now uh, with psoriatic arthritis and axial involvement based on patients' reported outcomes. Um, so um, what we especially did here was to take um, the um, studies with uh, psoriatic arthritis before and after or with or without pretreatment of biologics. I refer here to select PSA2 and select PSA1 respectively. Select PSA1 was a study with psoriatic arthritis without pretreatment of these patients with any biologic. Selective PSA2 was the study with pretreatment with a biologic DMARD. And there we um, went again back to the data, checked the patients reported outcomes, the PROs, and try to see whether or not there would be any difference now in the psoriatic arthritis field, uh, dependent or independent of the pretreatment of these patients when it came to axial findings, although primarily the diagnosis was psoriatic arthritis. The overall BASTI in the patients, in these patients, uh, was again assessed and also the, um, the single items of the BASTI. I would like to, um, to at least have mentioned that we had here a very large amount of patients who were analyzed. So um, in select PSA1, we had uh, a little bit more than 1,700 patients. In uh, select PSA2, um, we had 640 patients. And out of those, respectively, about one-fourth, 23%, or 393 patients in select PSA2, uh, one, also one-fourth, uh, this is almost uh, 28%, this means 176 patients were included for this specific analysis. In the results, um, the overall uh, change or the mean change in BASTI as compared to baseline after six months and after one year, um, we found um, a significant improvement uh, of the BASTI levels in both the studies. This means um, both in the patients who have not been pretreated, but those also those who have been pretreated with a biologic DMARD. And um, again, this was in the overall BASTI, but also in the so-called modified BASTI where we excluded question number three. Question number three, I would like to remind you is a study where we have peripheral involvement as a question. And here we wanted to see if by excluding this question, the more axial symptoms would improve similarly well, and this indeed was the case. Interestingly, uh, in select PSA1, we had also included patients who have been who have not been treated with a biologic, but were then treated 
um, uh, for um, uh, six months with uh, adalimumab as a comparator. And here we did have uh, those patients included in order to see whether or not um, there would be any difference uh, by using a, a biologic DMARTDNF blocker as compared to those patients who received primarily the JAK inhibitor pupadacetinib. And interestingly here indeed, um, uh, we saw that at least numerically, uh, and of course the study was not powerful showing any big differences, but numerically patients on pupadacetinib improved better um, to, this, um, to the PROs as compared to patients with adalimumab. Now, looking at the individual components of the BASTI, we did see that, as I mentioned before, these um, changed similarly to, for um, uh, um, each item of them. And especially also uh, criteria such as, which are important for both diseases such as psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, but also for both with or without peripheral uh, involvement, as mentioned in um, um, uh, earlier. Uh, we did see uh, when we evaluated, for example, fatigue as a question, um, a very good improvement uh, with uh, upadacitinib significantly uh, better as compared to placebo. The patients on, uh, on adalimumab also improved, but this, was, this improvement was uh, numerically lower, even for fatigue, as compared to um, the JAK inhibitor uh, upadacitinib. And this happened again in both uh, patients with and without pretreatment of a biologic uh, DMARD. Um, without wanting to go into all the other details, um, the same pattern of improvement and changes were seen for all the other outcome parameters that we used, even using BASTI 50 responses or ASDAS responses or statuses such as those with ASDAS inactive disease um, or major improvement, low disease activity and so on. So overall, what we can say is uh, that um, identifying those patients who have psoriatic arthritis or those who ha have primarily ankylosing spondylitis is important, but we uh, also need to take into account their axial or peripheral involvement respectively. And what I want in my for my patients and what we certainly are striving for is a drug or a treatment that um, really fits to all the symptoms uh, altogether and doesn't neglect or leave out uh, primarily the one or the other symptom. Uh, and this we did see in uh, all studies with uparacetinib, both for the psoriatic arthritis population as well as uh, for the ankylosing um, uh, spondylitis population. And again, here with or without axial symptoms as well. So very promising data. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to further sub-analysis also from other compounds to understand possible differences even between JAK inhibitors and TNF blockers. Interestingly, as I mentioned here, there were some differences between upadacitinib um, and adalimumab with numerically higher rates of response and better responses overall with upadacitinib. But of course, this needs to be confirmed in further clinical trials in order to be sure that um, these compounds are also different in terms of affection, positive affection of the symptoms of our patients. Thank you very much. 
Well, hello, my name is Ian McInnes. I'm the Vice Principal and Head of College of Medical Veterinary and Life Sciences here at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And it's an absolute pleasure to be telling you about this uh, poster presented at the American College of Rheumatology meeting. Um, I had the privilege of presenting this on behalf of my learned co-authors, the long-term safety and effectiveness of upadacitinib in patients with psoriatic arthritis. These are the results at 56 weeks from the Select PSA1 study. Now, in this particular study, we are showing 56-week efficacy and safety data for upadacitinib versus adalimumab in people with moderately to severely active psoriatic arthritis from an ongoing long-term extension of the phase three clinical trial SELECT PSA1. We previously published the SELECT PSA1 study, which demonstrated that there was uh, pretty robust responses at early time points, and, and clearly we now need to look in the longer term. Psoriatic arthritis is a chronic disease, and we need to have medicines that will be robust and durable. Now, if you look at figure one, patients enrolled in SELECT PSA1 had an inadequate response or intolerance to more than or equal to one non-biologic DMARD, and they were randomly assigned to 56 weeks of blinded treatment with oral upadacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams, both given once daily, adalimumab 40 milligrams given every other week, or placebo, and the placebo could be switched to upadacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams once daily at week 24. So the truly blinded part of the study, although it's blinded for the duration of a year, the placebo control part is, is up to week 24, and that's what we previously reported. Now, of 1,704 patients who received more than our one dose of study drug, 83% completed 56 weeks of treatment. And if you look at a series of figures, two, three, and four, you'll see that patients originally assigned to upadacitinib maintain or had further improvements in ACR 20, 50, 70, PASI 75, 90, and 100, and MDA responses from week 24 through to week 56. Patients who switched from placebo to upadacitinib at week 24 experienced similar improvements to those originally assigned to upadacitinib by week 56. So that tells us that there are pretty robust responses from uh, six through 12 months. And that tells us, it gives us increasing confidence, first of all, about the robust nature of the mode of action, but also the potential utility that this medicine might have in clinical practice. Now, of course, psoriatic arthritis is associated with radiographic progression, and ultimately radiographic damage corresponds pretty well to functional decay in our patients. So we're interested also in what happened in terms of radiology. And if you look at figure five, you can see that mean changes from baseline in radiographic endpoints using modified um, TSS, erosion and joint space narrowing, were similar with upadacitinib and adalimumab treatment. And I guess TNF blockade is considered nowadays the gold standard, isn't it? Because we don't really see progression. And Robert Landaway showed quite recently that even in patients who don't have an inflammatory clinical response to adalimumab, those on adalimumab do not erode. So I think it's a, it's a pretty firm comparator in this regard. And then the next thing, of course, to think about, well, okay, it's, it's, it's anti-inflammatory, it's well tolerated, and, and retention rates through one year are pretty satisfactory. But what about safety? Um, and I first always say that the place to look for safety is in large long-term extension studies. One year is probably not long enough, but we did, however, report the 56-week safety profile in this particular poster. And in figure six, you'll see the safety profiles of hepatocytinib and adalimumab, and you'll see that they were generally comparable. 
rates of serious infection, opportunistic infection and herpes zoster were higher for patients treated with upadacitinib than adalimumab. Rates of malignancy, adjusted MACE and, and venous thromboembolism were infrequent overall, but similar for patients treated with upadacitinib and adalimumab. And potentially clinically significant laboratory abnormalities, if you have a look at those, they're, they're in the table, you'll see that they were well, pretty rare, but most of them were transient. That doesn't mean they don't matter, but it, it does mean they're unlikely to be a considerable problem in clinical practice. So just pulling all of this together, efficacy across key domains of psoriatic arthritis, remember it's a heterogeneous condition and we really are looking for multi-domain responses. Well, these, um, the, these different domains demonstrated efficacy, which was maintained and continued to improve even with the Patterson treated over 56 weeks. The clinical responses with uparacitinib were generally numerically higher or comparable to adalimumab. For me, that just means the two drugs should be considered in the same breath. I, I don't think we should be serious about superiority in this regard. Patients who switched from placebo to uparacitinib at week 24 had similar improvements in efficacy measures at week 56, and those assigned to uparacitinib all at baseline. So basically, week 24 through week 56, you will continue to improve if you had placebo before week 24. And I guess importantly, although I, with the caution I've given you, there were no new safety findings observed with longer exposure to uparacitinib with a 15 milligram dose, particularly demonstrating a, a comparable safety profile to adalimumab with no increased risk observed for, for MACE cardiovascular events, venous thromboembolism or malignancy. Well, these are encouraging data. We're still a long way to go. We need to see uh, further long-term extension, which will inform us as to the safety and tolerability of uparacitinib. But it's certainly an encouraging step in the journey. I hope you found it interesting, and I wish you well in your clinical practice. Thank you very much indeed for your attention. Hello, I'm Laure Gossec, a rheumatologist from Paris, France. It's a pleasure to, to share with you our results on the efficacy of uparacitinib in patients with active psoriatic arthritis, with higher versus lower swollen joint counts. This was a subgroup analysis of two uh, phase three studies, which are the SELECT PSA1 and SELECT PSA2 studies. So we know that there are differences between patients in, with psoriatic arthritis in randomized controlled trials versus in our clinics. And in particular, in our clinics, oligoarticular disease is quite frequent. With this analysis, we planned to reanalyze two uh, phase three uh, uh, randomized controlled trials of patients with psoriatic arthritis who received uh, upadacitinib either 15 milligram or 13 milligram once daily. The SELECT PSA1 trial also evaluated patients receiving adalimumab, and both trials were against placebo. And what we did was analyze oligoarticular disease because patients with a strict definition of oligoarticular disease were very unfrequent in this uh, setting of the randomized controlled trials. What we did was we assessed patients who had lower swollen joint count. And here we define this as a maximum of five swollen joint counts. And we assess treatment efficacy in this population versus patients with a higher swollen joint count. And we did not analyze specifically tender joint count. So what we show in this poster is firstly that having a low swollen joint count in these randomized controlled trials was not very frequent. Indeed, we have 215 patients 
with a maximum of five swollen joint counts versus 1,000 patients with uh, five or more swollen joint counts. Secondly, we analyzed reaching treatment efficacy in terms of composite scores in these two populations. And we found that the rate of MDA was very similar in patients with lower versus higher swollen joint counts. In this case, around 33% of patients were reaching minimal uh, disease activity corresponding to low disease activity. Reaching DAPSA low disease activity was easier and was very similar in both swollen joint count groups with 43 to 46% of patients reaching DAPSA LDA. Remission was of course much more difficult to reach and VLDA corresponding to remission was reached in 11 to 13% of patients according to the swollen joint count. And DAPSA remission is also very difficult to reach and was found in nine to 14% of patients uh, corresponding to their swollen joint count uh, levels. Other uh, endpoints, including PASTAS, low disease or remission, reaching low levels of joint counts and reaching ACR uh, 20, 50 and 70 responses were also quite similar for the upadacitinib groups if they were with maximum five swollen joints or more than five swollen joints. Therefore, we conclude that um, upadacitinib appears to be an interesting treatment option and is similarly efficacious in patients with lower versus higher swollen joint counts. Have a lovely Congress. Thanks for joining us for this edition of our ACR Highlights. I hope you enjoyed the presentations. Make sure to subscribe to CSF Podcasts on Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on our Congress content or any of our other usual monthly content. You can also visit the CSF webpage at cytokinesignaling.com where you can access a whole range of resources from monthly slide summaries of the latest papers to accredited CME courses and even more content in between. Thank you for listening.